Hi, I'm Ali Maldro, the host of A Public Affair on Tuesdays. You can listen to this show any day of the week, any hour of the day on the WORT smartphone app or on wortfm.org. If you love what you hear, click that donate button and support community media. Your donation makes a huge difference. Six foot six above sea level. I grab my mic because I like to take it to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound communication. Good afternoon, Madison. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM Madison. I'm your host, Ali Maldro. This is a public affair, and today we are so lucky to be joined by Kristen Lyerly and Tiffany Green who are, are joining us as experts and medical professionals. Tiffany Green is the assistant professor in the Department of Population Health Sciences, Obstetrics, and Gynecology at UW-Madison. How are you doing today, Dr. Tiffany Green? Oh, my mic was off. I'm doing great. <laughs> We're, you know, we're going to get those like little technical components out of the way early in the show. Um, but, you know, we're still we're still gathering remotely. You all are at home or in your offices. I'm here at the WORT studio. Still very grateful that y'all can be with us. Kristen, Dr. Kristen Lyerly, who is a practicing OBGYN in Green Bay. How are you doing today? Hanging in there, doing the best we can on this really important primary day, Ali. Heck, yeah. Thank you so much for bringing up Election Day. If you have not voted, get out there and vote, Wisconsin. It is so important. Um, you know, I wanted to talk to you about the, the political rally reality that is the overturning of Roe v. Wade and what that means to you all and the work that you're doing, um, as well as what that means to the medical community, um, what that means for people's health and safety moving forward. So thank you so much for joining us for this incredibly important conversation. Dr. Tiffany Green, I want to start with you. Um, you know, how, how, have, how has the kind of politics of the overturning of Roe v. Wade played out for you as, you know, as a doctor, as the assistant professor in the Department of Population Health Sciences, Obstetrics, and Gynecology at UW-Madison? So I'll leave the doctoring to Dr. Lyerly. I am a trained economist and population health scientist who really focuses on the causes and consequences of racial ethnic disparities in reproductive health. And I think that what we're seeing is what, um, what I and a lot of other experts predicted, that one, um, pregnant people aren't getting the medical care that they need uh, when it comes to ectopic pregnancies, not even just un undesired or unwanted. I, I, yeah, I want to pause right there because I think ectopic pregnancies have been missed. Do you mind explaining to folks what an ectopic pregnancy is? So ectopic pregnancies, when, when a pregnancy is outside the uterus, um, it could be in the fallopian tubes. Is, is there somewhere else it can be, Dr. Lyerly? Yeah, it can be in the tubes, on the ovaries, in the cervix. It can be in a cesarean scar. It can be way up in the corner of the uterus where the uterus can't expand appropriately. So there are a lot of different places that it can be. But I think the one thing that, it, that all of these places have in common is these pregnancies are not viable. They cannot continue and they all put the life of the person who is carrying this pregnancy in danger. You, you two are a dream team. Yes, thank you. So what we're seeing, <laughs> what we're seeing is um, what we're seeing is essentially people not getting the medical care that they need. Um, doctors having to consult with legal to see if they are are allowed to perform what is very necessary and um, life saving care and care that preserves people's uh, future fertility should they want that and their health and well being. So that that's one thing. Um, another thing that we're of course seeing is people that are having to travel. People, well, let's be clear, people are, we're already living in a post-world world <laughs> before the Dobbs decision dropped. Um, there, you know, a few years back, there were um, clinics in, I think, Green Bay and other areas of Wisconsin that were closed down. Like, there's nothing for people up there. There's nothing. And there was nothing before Dobbs uh, for many years. Um, so a lot of people are having to go to Illinois and or Minnesota. And the fact is a lot of people cannot afford, do not have the resources to get to those places. And they're forced to carry pregnancies that are undesired to term if, if they make it to term. And that can cause all kinds of problems uh, with uh, their health and well-being, whether it be um, their actual physical health, their mental health, 
and uh, their emotional well-being, and as we know from the Turnaway study, their financial health and well-being. So, it, you know, none of this is a surprise, but it still is devastating all the same. Mm, thank you so much for speaking to that, Dr. Tiffany Green. Dr. Kristen Laherly, I want to ask, you know, how how this has impacted your work, what the climate is like for you as, as a doctor working in Green Bay right now? You know, as Dr. Green mentioned, we were already really limited with regards to abortion services. So here in Wisconsin, before Dobbs happened, we only had four abortion clinics in the whole state. Two were in Milwaukee, one in Madison, and one in Sheboygan. So if you know the geography of Wisconsin, that leaves the entire northern part of the state, as well as central and western Wisconsin, without access to abortion care. And I think from a physician standpoint, an abortion is not something that stands alone. This is not this is not the political definition of an abortion. For us, it's a continuum. And it's all about health care and pregnancy-related care. And what does my patient need? So what we're seeing now is patients with not only ectopic pregnancies, but complicated pregnancies, early pregnancy loss, miscarriage, um, it, people with desired pregnancies that they would love to be able to continue, but for one reason or another, whether it's a maternal indication or a fetal indication, it's putting their life in danger. And we are, our hands are really tied. We don't have the same resources that we had before to be able to take care of these people in their most desperate times. Can you talk a little bit more about what this means? Because obviously you weren't performing abortion in, in Green Bay, but you were supporting folks who were miscarrying and having ectopic pregnancies and other really, you know, complex realities of, of pregnancy. Um, and and so you, a little bit of what you're saying is that this decision has impacted your ability to care for those people. What does that look like? It, it sure has. So like, just to back up a little bit, when Roe fell, Wisconsin went back to a law that was written in 1849 that prohibited abortion even in cases of rape and incest. And the only exception was for the life of the mother, not the health of the mother, not the well-being of the mother, but the life of the mother. Well, in 1849, that meant something very different than what it means right now. And I can tell you that my colleagues who have trained and are constantly learning, we know when the life of the mother is at risk. She doesn't have a meter on her that says 10% risk, you know, red, you're approaching the red zone. Like we know when somebody, when somebody's water breaks and they're 17 weeks pregnant, we know that that pregnancy is not likely to survive and the mother's life is at risk because she is susceptible to developing an infection. So in our practice, the advice that we give patients is you can continue this pregnancy and you should watch out for these things. And you know this is the risk that you are facing if you decide to continue the pregnancy, but that's an option. Or we can terminate the pregnancy and then you won't have to worry about bleeding and infection and the possibility that this could affect your future reproductive potential. But we give that option to the patient and we make that decision together with evidence and support. And these, again, these pregnancies are often desired. So this gives patients at least a little bit of agency over what happens with their bodies. So, and, but now we can't do that because we don't know where that line is. We don't know that lawyers are going to interpret it the same way that we do as medical professionals. I, I think that part of what has happened is there is this desire to police the bodies of people who can become pregnant. And so, you know, just saying a pregnancy is desired, just saying someone has miscarried is no longer enough. People are now, you know, being investigated for whether or not it is their fault that uh, a miscarriage took place or it is their fault um, that that they're not healthy during their pregnancy. Dr. Tiffany Green, I want to ask you about the implications of that um, in terms of the criminalization of, of abortion. Abortion is not just prohibited. It is a felony in the state of Wisconsin right now. Um, there's been a lot of folks who have talked about what this means for black and brown women specifically, um, particularly in a place like Milwaukee, where the infant mortality rate is really high. And I think folks would love um, to blame black women for that. 
what are what are what are the imp- implications of this criminalization right now and what are what is the long-term impact that folks who want abortion criminalized are hoping um will will see well as as you noted this idea of, of criminalizing uh pregnancy and criminalizing miscarriages rather is nothing new um i was just t- i'm talking on the uh another um interview about Purvi Patel in Indiana. So some years back, she had a miscarriage and she was charged with, um, with, with killing her infant. <laughs> um, and this was, this was not intended under the original law, but you know, prosecutors really do have a wide latitude about how to charge people. And again, you know, women of color, pregnant people of color, more likely to be charged with things like child endangerment, even though rates of substance use disorder are very similar, more likely to be reported by medical professionals, professionals by social workers. So medical professionals and social workers are certainly implicated in all of this. And I think that the the fall of Roe v. Wade uh, is a time for the medical profession to really look inward, for the social work profession to look inward and, and really examine their, their role, which has been empirically documented. This is not something I'm making up off the top of my head um, in this. Um, for Wisconsin in particular, we have Act 292, uh, which basically allows the state a very wide latitude to criminalize um, pregnant people um, who are suspected <laughs> of being on drugs. Notice I said suspected. Um, and that can include incarceration, taking taking children, forced to go to treatment. Um, so this policing of bodies, as you alluded to, is nothing new. And I think that in this post-Dobbs world, um, it's only going to be exacerbated because there will be more people and disproportionately people of color that are forced to give birth. Mm, thank you so much for speaking to that. And I do think there is a tension between communities of color and the medical community in terms of this conversation, um, because black women have been saying um, for you know decades, we're not getting the care that we need. We're not getting you know what we need from our doctors, from our providers. And it is dangerous for us to be pregnant. It is dangerous for us to give birth in our communities. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to WORT 89.9 FM. This is a public affair. I'm your host, Ali Maldrow. Thank you so much for tuning in this beautiful Tuesday. It is glorious outside, which means it's just a really easy, nice day to go vote. Please go vote. Shout out to Rochelle, our producer, who wrote a really nice, like, Ali, remind folks to vote. Um, We're going to talk about the importance of voting while we talk about the importance of reproductive rights, reproductive health care, with our incredible guests, Dr. Kristen Lyerly and Dr. Tiffany Green, um, both joining us today for a really important conversation but if you are on your lunch break in your car on your way to vote um, and you want to join this conversation the number is 608-256 oh my gosh I forgot the number I have to look behind me um Thank you, Rochelle. Rochelle's the best, y'all. I don't know what we would do without her. It's 608-256-2001, extension 9. Join this conversation. Ask questions of our medical experts. Um, So grateful to have both of you here. Dr. Kristen uh, Lyerly, you talked a little bit about the political climate in Green Bay. Um, You recently ran for office for, was it your first time running? It was. It was during COVID. So it just seemed like a time when things really needed to change. And if anybody could make a difference, if if anybody could break that gerrymandering lock, it would be a physician in the middle of a pandemic. But unfortunately, we are so profoundly gerrymandered that we just couldn't make it happen. Well, you know, sometimes that's the the first try. I'll say as an elected official, you know, Obama lost his first election. I lost my my first election. Carousel Bard lost her first election. Um, So, you know, don't be afraid to to put to put your shoes back on and get out there and do some doors and try it again, because God knows we need you. that being said, you know, what is is the reaction in a place like Green Bay celebratory um, in terms of the overturning of Roe v. Wade? Are, are folks excited to criminalize and arrest people? We're hearing, you know, in some parts of the state that DAs are coming out and saying we won't prosecute people who get an abortion. Um, what does that what does that look like and feel like in your neck of the woods? 
I think it's really hard for me to say objectively because the people that I talk to and the people that I hear from, there's so much selection bias. So what I'm hearing is people want to use their voices. People feel like this is time for a change and they do feel inspired. And we do have some really great candidates. We have no open seats here. So there is somebody, everybody is being challenged up here with regards to state assembly and that's good. And we are doing a lot of really good local and statewide or local and regional work with um, with folks, political organizations. So that work is being done. It's just going to be a long, slow process. But specifically with regards to our post-Dobbs era, um, I see a lot of inspired young people. And that is the thing that's giving me hope. These are topics that have been really hard for a lot of us to talk about for a very long time. But these young people who get out there with a megaphone and they're willing to share their stories and they're willing to have these difficult conversations, they're the ones who are going to change it. I think it's such an interesting thing to talk about how young people are uniquely impacted by this decision, um, particularly young people who, you know, menstruate, right? Like I, I got my period at the age of 13. Um, so the, the need for conversations that are medically accurate and inclusive about my reproductive rights um, has been important to me for the last 22 years of my life. Um, and so I think, I think young people are really compelled to be part of this conversation because they they are so deeply impacted and this does you know there's a long-term implication if you, a, abortion was outlawed during your your adolescence which I can't imagine I grew up um, with reproductive rights in a very progressive community when it comes to you know very specifically feminist issues um, as a black woman sitting at the intersection of of issues I would say there's there's some real complexity there dr. Tiffany or dr. Tiffany Green uh, when you're when you're thinking about kind of the historical reality of this, you talked really eloquently at the beginning of the show about how this is nothing new. Um, but when you're talking about gynecology, when you're talking about obstetrics um, and the practices that we've embraced in terms of pregnancy, there there's a lot of, of controversy in terms of how we support pregnant people, um, the kinds of results we produce for for infant mortality and maternal mortality. What what is your your hope um, that we can that people will be more aware of because we're having this conversation? What are the things you think the average person in Wisconsin doesn't understand about our approach to pregnancy um, that, you know, we now get to really deep dive and talk about? You know, I think uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Monica McLemore, who just moved to the, the other UW, not the real one, University of Washington, she talks about, uh, you know, a lot of times re the opportunity to reimagine what is possible. And I also talk about that a lot. Um, medical care, you know, I've been in medical schools my entire career, although I am not a medical doctor. I'm a social scientist, and and I think all academia is is hierarchical, but medicine is particularly hierarchical. And people are often um, at the cutting edge of innovation, but also very steeped in these very traditional and old hierarchies. And sometimes it is it is a, a model that's not as patient centered. So I think what I hope comes out of this is one. Um, a, a, a renewed commitment to patient-centered care, that, mm. that our markers of quality really consider what pregnant people want. And, and one of the things somebody was saying, um, I think Dr. Lyerly and I were on a recent panel together before, is that um, you know people don't imagine what abortion care could look like. It's often steeped in shame and stigma and, okay, I got the abortion, this is great. But there's a lot that, you know, Black women in particular, particularly the mothers of the reproductive justice movement, always envisioned, as, as, as Dr. Larley talked about, this idea of a continuum of care. Abortion is sort of this thing this, that we think of as segmented from regular care. No, it is health care. It is very necessary health care. And I hope that um, this in this post-Dobbs world, we stop segmenting it from regular care. And as the mothers of the movement, I'm um, talked about this is about the right to not just not just to not be pregnant, but the right to get pregnant. Um, black people more likely to have issues with fertility, less likely to have success with assisted reproductive technology. What if we could imagine a world where people have ready access to abortion and yet have also ready access to um, 
to fertility care, which they don't currently. It's not mandated in Wisconsin for insurance providers or many other states for insurance providers to provide assistance with fertility care. And also the right to raise our children in safety. So what does that mean when it comes to policing? <laughs> what does that mean when it comes to schools? What does it mean when it comes to COVID policy? All of those things matter, right? When we're talking about reproductive justice. And I hope that in this post-ops world, people finally start listening to, to uh, reproductive justice advocates and particularly black women who have been sounding an alarm for many years in the community and, and try to reimagine something different. I want to lean into the unique positionality of black women as a black woman, um, in part because I think black women have been so targeted um, by 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 the anti-choice movement. I remember driving through Milwaukee a few years ago and seeing um, a billboard that said the most dangerous place for a black child is the womb um, and really, you know, talking about how prevalent abortion was amongst black women. And I immediately thought about how that narrative um, is really complicated if you don't understand the history of ble breeding plantations and black women. Like, what does forced birth, forced pregnancy, um, you know, mean for black women in a historical sense in a country that enslaved black women and enslaved black children from birth to death? Can you talk a little bit about, you know, the unique positionality of black women, Dr. Tiffany Green, um, in terms of, you know, why black women have been attacked for, for choosing abortion and also why black women have been targeted to get abortions. Yeah, so you, you kind of alluded to this and I happen to have taught uh, the, the, what I think is the first class in um, in the US specifically looking at race and in, in, in OB-GYN and the development of the field. And the reality is that the that, that OB-GYN and particularly gynecology and slavery were had this very symbiotic relationship, right? The South was considered sort of a backwater when it came to medicine. And but 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 really the goal was for enslaved women uh, or people that could birth to be able to birth more and to be able to get back into the fields. And obstetrics and gynecology, this really, this really um, new and really nascent field was like, okay, we can help with that. We can help with fertility. We can help with getting people back to work. And so we talk a lot about J. Marion Sims and the experiments he did on enslaved black women, um, Anarka, Lucy, Lucy, Betsy, and, and the countless others that we can't name. And this was done in large part to help perpetuate the institution of slavery. This isn't like something controversial. This is something that's very clearly laid out in the historical um, literature. I would also argue that that Sims, um, you know, targeted white Irish immigrant women because again, these women were racialized as other. So anytime you have, and this is not to negate what happened to black women, but this is this is talking about how marginalized groups are often targeted when it comes to reproductive uh, reproductive freedoms, right? And so post slavery. Um, we we had you know we had the eugenics movement and so the eugenics movement targeted people that were poor. Um, most famous case, of course, is Buck v. Bell, um, which helped to re-energize this dying eugenics movement. And black people uh, were one of the groups that were targeted. We have empirical evidence showing that that black counties in North Carolina were that had larger black proportion of black population were were more likely to be targeted. Um, had higher levels of of for sterilization rates, right? And this is not this is not anything that's in the recent past. We had um, the recent um, scandal with ICE, where women were given um, hysterectomies without their consent. So mm -hmm. these these people, these immigrant women in ICE facilities that nobody cares about, and that's the common theme over and over and over again. And black women have been a unique target of some of these efforts. And and so what I want to focus on is the fact that this is all about reproductive control. And the idea that the, 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 the place, the, the, the most dangerous place where a black baby is in the womb, really, um, really shifts away from the fact that um, black children are more likely um, than any other racial ethnic group to die before their first year of life. Thankfully, Wisconsin has dropped out of the top spot, but we're still nowhere where we need to be. Um, that black uh, birthing people are disproportionately likely, more likely to die uh, uh, within a year. 
of pregnancy, like that, those are the huge problems that need to be addressed, right? And so I think it's, you know, framing this and reproductive justice uh, advocates have really fought, they push back against that kind of framing because it ignores the larger cultural and social and economic environments that shape um, how people get pregnant and what supports people have for pregnancy and, and birthing. So um, all that said is, is I hopefully that, that kind of shows that this is about reproductive coercion. It's not about saving black babies. Oh, thank you so much for saying that. And Dr. Kristen Lyerly, I think getting your perspective as a medical professional who is serving, you know, real people, um, you know, what is there is there a push from doctors to improve the quality of care for for pregnant people right now um, to say if people are going to be forced to sustain pregnancies, we really have to do everything we can um, to make sure that there's early detection, to make sure that people have prenatal vitamins, to make sure that people have transportation to the doctor's office, um, you know. Whether, whether a pregnancy is wanted or not, what is, what is the work and the role of doctors in supporting pregnant people right now and, and promoting the best possible outcomes for, for folks who experience pregnancy? Well, I don't think any of that has really changed. I mean, we, you know, as we talked about earlier, we have always, at least recently, had a difficult time offering full spectrum OBGYN care, including abortion care. So it's always been our goal to make sure that people are as well supported, whether it comes to uh, social services or rides or prenatal vitamins or, you know, just making sure that people have the best um, pregnancy experience possible. So I don't think any of that has really changed. But what I'd really love to speak to is everything that Dr. Green just talked about. Because in my training as a resident, just 10 years ago, 15 years ago, we heard none of this. We have instruments named after J. Marion Sims. We knew nothing about these women, you know, maybe a little bit of background information, but nothing that really helped to inform us about how to take care of our patients. And I think that that has really changed significantly. And it's come from our national headquarters who has who have developed an office specifically focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, doing series of information education about what is the history of OBGYN and how do we incorporate that information so that we can better understand our patients and take care of them where they're at. Because what I've seen on a, you know, this is all like academic, what Dr. Green is talking about, and it's really important. But when it comes to me sitting in an office with a patient, even someone who is bright and educated and logical, she may be making some decisions that aren't making sense to me. And as we talk through things, she's not really understanding where those decisions are coming from, but her gut is telling her to do one thing. And as we talk through the history and we talk about her influences, we can start to figure out why she's thinking the way she is, what historical things are affecting her and how we can use her experiences to help her make the best decisions in the context of her own life. This is complicated stuff. So when you take all of that academic research and all that history and boil it down to the patient interaction, it is hard, but it is our obligation and it is the oath that we took as physicians. Dr. Kristen Lyerly, I very much appreciate that answer. And I feel like I have to ask this because I think so many people wonder right now, if I go into my doctor and I find out I'm pregnant and it's a perfectly healthy pregnancy and I am not interested in continuing the pregnancy, can I tell my doctor that? Can I ask my doctor for support around that? What is my doctor supposed to do? What are you supposed to do if a patient comes into your office and says, I don't want to, to carry, you know, to carry this pregnancy to term? That's really hard. So I was working in uh, Sheboygan offering abortion care and the stories that I would hear from the people who came to visit about the initial experiences that they had with their physicians and the different reactions that they got and how they understood whether their doctor was on their side or not. It was really, it was shameful to me as a physician, recognizing that some of my colleagues really didn't have the best interests of their patients in mind. And that's something that we need to work on as a profession. But I also want people to know that those resources are out there 
And it is incredibly important, whether we're talking about reproductive care or preventive care or any sort of health care, it is so important to have a, a provider who cares about you, who you trust, who you think is helping you make the best decisions for you that are in your best interest. So I wish I could say, yeah, go to your doctor. You can absolutely trust your doctor. They're going to refer you. They're going to help you find the best pathway. That's not the case. And there are pregnancy centers, crisis pregnancy centers, tons of them out there that reel people in with free pregnancy tests and free ultrasounds. And then they give you 50% of the information that you need to know, but none of it involves the complicated pregnancy stuff that may include abortion care. So knowing that those traps are out there, I think is important for people who are seeking real information. Thank you so much for speaking to that, Dr. Kristen Lyerly and Dr. Tiffany Green are joining us today on WORT 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Muldrow. This is a public affair. If you want to join the conversation, our number is 608-256-2001, extension 9. Rochelle will patch you through so that you can join us on the air. Or if you just want to ask your question to Rochelle or Rory, um, you can ask them the question and they will send it to us in the chat. So do what feels right for you. Do what makes you comfortable, but we'd love for you to participate in this conversation today on WORT 89.9 FM. I want to jump into the conversation about contraceptive um, because immediately upon the, you know, overturning of Roe v. Wade or the Dobbs decision, um, contraception was under attack. Um, and it, it was very clear that contraception could be the next um, big debate. Debate, Dr. Tiffany Green, in Madison, there was a, a, a pilot to provide free contraceptive to high school students at West High School um, as part of a, a, a nurse's, you know, PhD um, research. How, how, how do you feel, you know, we should be defending the right to contraceptive right now? What does the attack on contraceptive mean um, for, for folks who use contraceptive for all kinds of reasons? I mean, obviously, I think my, my baseline, I think it's important uh, for anyone to be clear about what their baseline assumptions and beliefs are. Uh, we like to pretend that academia is this perfectly objective thing. Everybody has their priors. And mine is that reproductive autonomy are, and freedom are, are fundamental conditions to reaching um, highest human potential. So that's my baseline, right? So I think that given that, I think that we all <laughs> are responsible for making sure that we have comprehensively educated our children and our adolescents about the human body and giving them access to healthcare. We wouldn't say, man, um, what is it controversial that a, a, a doctoral candidate wanted to provide pilot testing for dental care for students? We wouldn't say, we wouldn't say, oh, well, there's a pilot test. Well, um, and, to, and to be fair, Dr. Tiffany Green, it wasn't controversial in Madison, Wisconsin, but I do wanna say we live in a a, a district choice state, right? Which means you can go 40 miles outside of, Ma not even, you can go to Wanakee, y'all, and you will find abstinence-only sex education, okay? So the idea of comprehensive, inclusive, medically accurate sex education, that's only legally required in 13 states in the United States. There are only 13 states that say your, your sex education has to be medically accurate. Um, so going back to the conversation about, you know, conception, I completely agree with you um, that we we want our students to be, you know, aware and have the ability to make good decisions about their body. And simultaneously, that's not the reality of our of our state right now. So in the conversation about contraceptive and our young people, um, how do we combat kind of the, the current state of things? I don't think, and again, this is me being academic again, I don't think we have to accept false framing. I don't, I don't, we don't have conversations with people on the radio like, okay, do you believe the earth is flat or do you believe it's a sphere? We, we don't have those conversations with people. Not on this radio station, we don't. <laughs> so, <laughs> so this idea that everybody has to, has an equal stake or equal expertise to add to the debate is a false premise. Okay, like, I don't, oh, I don't oh, get okay, Dr. Green, we, we see you. I don't, you know, I don't. I don't, I don't get on the radio and say my opinion about black holes is, you know why? Because I know nothing about physics. <laughs> I don't weigh in on physics. What I do know is about population health inequality. What I do know is how economics applies to that. 
What I do know and have the didactic training and lived experience in is, is, is structural inequality. So I can opine upon those things. And I can also opine upon what the evidence says. It doesn't matter what I think. The evidence is very clear that abstinence-only education is not evidence-based and it doesn't work to prevent pregnancy. Like that, like people are like, oh, well, my belief is, well, your belief might be this thing, but the evidence, what our, what our systematic uh, approach to generating knowledge has found is that abstinence-only education is ineffective in preventing pregnancy. That should be the end of the conversation, right? That right. But this is why I'm not in public policy. Well, because they're <laughs> presuming that people respect evidence. They and don't. They I don't understand that. No, well, I do. I want to chime in here and just say, I think as, as a policymaker, as a school board member, I think part of what you said is actually one of the scarier realities. Um, I think that there are a lot of people who identify as progressive or identify on the left who, when it gets down to the nuts and bolts of what to do right now, are like, I'm not an expert. I'm not an expert on, on human growth and development. And therefore, I don't know what to what to do to counter bad policy. Um, and I think it's interesting how one side of the aisle is more likely to go, I'm not an expert. I shouldn't be doing this. And another side is going, my information is completely inaccurate. And it should also dominate the reality of everyone. Um, and so I, I think like, I feel this real tension around who is relying on expertise. Um, and I think after the, the COVID pandemic, I have to be really honest with you all, there is a part of me that became really cynical and really, um, you know, saddened by how how misinformation was able to dominate the conversation and continues to dominate the conversation around the best practices that we should embrace um, in terms of this ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Kristen Lively, I want to ask you a, a similar question, although I think, you know, we, we really got into the conversation about education and need to continue to have that in terms of our young people. But looking at contraception and the attack on contraception, what does that mean for for you as a physician, as somebody who can prescribe contraceptive to people, um, as somebody who might advise somebody to get on a specific contraceptive for a variety of reasons, including, you know, skin care or endometriosis or, you know, there's a, there's people use contraceptive for, for more than preventing birth control, for more than just being sexually active. Um, so how does how does that attack you know, impact you and the work that you're doing? You're entirely right. I have said to my patients on numerous occasions, I wish we didn't call this birth control because this is a hormonal medication that we can use to make your periods lighter or less painful or to treat your cancer or your menopause symptoms. There are so many different reasons that we use contraceptives. So for us to have our hands tied and not be able to take care of our patients and their actual medical needs because politicians have some sort of a bias against people being able to control their own reproductive life story is just, it's unbelievable. And it really underlines the fundamental problem here. Politicians need to stay out of our exam rooms. These are issues between patients and providers where we are trying to use evidence to solve problems that will allow people to make decisions to benefit them within the context of their lives. It makes me crazy as a doctor and a human being. And by the way, I just have to say, misinformation when it is spread by your US Senator like Ron Johnson, who is out there talking about COVID and ivermectin. I honestly cannot give my cat his ivermectin pill without thinking of Ron Johnson chewing on one himself. This is ridiculous that people who have no training are telling people this and they're being listened to and people are believing this and it's causing harm and it's causing death. And it's just, it's, it's surreal. But this is the world that we live in right now. It's the world that we live in right now. And just a, a quick reminder, we don't have to keep living in this world, right? Like today is election day. Um, I think Kristen was just trying to be real subtle about, you know, the, the, <laughs> the political the, the political stakes of, of this, right? Like, um, I, I understand when people say, you know, your health care shouldn't be political, but it is. 
right? Like your health care is political. political. The quality of care we get is political. The kinds of care we have access to are political. The information that we get, our education, these are political things. So I understand the frustration people have with our current political reality. And my fear around that is that people give up, that people stop wanting to participate, that people accept that this is just the way it is um, and are willing to go along with it because of how hard it is to fight back. Dr. Tiffany Green, I think looking at, you know, the the social implications and, and ramifications of this, I, I do think it's interesting to think about who is energized by the overturning of Roe v. Wade um, and and whether or not people, you know, respond to this by becoming more active, becoming more organized, becoming more supportive of one another um, or whether or not people, you know, are, are disengaged. Um, and I think, you know, for the folks who fought for Roe v. Wade to be overturned for decades now. It, this is a moment where, you know, it seems like folks are are celebrating, are fueled by this, are framing it as a victory. Um, for you, what 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 is the the kind of consequences of of either being politically evol- involved or not being politically involved? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a complicated question, and I always try to punt to the experts like political scientists. Um, and, and one one I'm thinking of. Um, Dr. Jamila Missioner at uh, Cornell. She doesn't study abortion in particular, but she studies Medicaid and federalism and how that 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 shapes people's capacity to be politically involved, involved in the process. If you if you don't have health care, if you don't have a place to lay your head, if you don't have your basic needs covered, how equipped are you to participate in the political process? And so I, I think of, I, I, you know, a lot of people have, have talked about what this means for um, the democratic control of the House and, and the Senate in the fall, you know, midterm elections, et cetera. But I, you know, at, at a fundamental level, this is, an, this is a, yet another erosion of reproductive freedom. And it's going to impact people's ability to participate, further impact uh, marginalize people's ability to participate in this political experiment we call the United States. And I think that more so than sort of trying to play um, political uh, chess and try to f- try to forecast um, like Nate Silver, I have my issues with Nate Silver, we'll talk about that another time. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think that is more, that's something we need to be fundamentally concerned about because um, this, this is a state that is gerrymandered, as Dr. Larley talked about before. I remember um, at the beginning stages of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic when um, we weren't even allowed to to call, you know, to exercise the public health um, uh, options that we had. People stood in line in Milwaukee um, to vote, and, and people saw that as po- like that wasn't positive. It was it was devastating, right? I think we should have a world where people, um, we make it easy for people to vote, like rolling on a bed. <laughs> but I, I think, like- I think isn't that part of, isn't part of the point that of this disenfranchisement, right? Isn't yes. that part of the point of, you know, forced pregnancy, forced birth is disenfranchisement, right? Um, stripping people of their bodily autonomy, stripping people of their right to vote, making people's lives more challenging, driving more people into poverty. Um, isn't part of it, isn't part of the point the the cruelty and the disenfranchisement and you know i've been thinking about this recently as kind of the writing on the wall um do we do we have to start talking about the large scale implications of something like this in terms of what it means for our society and the direction that we're heading and and dr green i want to ask you that question because i think you're you're the person most you know equipped to talk about the larger (laughs) ramifications socially I mean, you know, I, I think about what the, I go back to what the evidence says. And so we know from um, more recent studies, like the Turnaway study, that being denied an abortion um, increases uh, poverty, um, short and long-term poverty. We know that um, it disproportionately um, impacts um, Black and other people of color who are seeking abortions in terms of health and well-being and birth outcomes. And so we've already like tried to contract our social programs. Uh, Wisconsin in particular had the option to, to extend uh, postpartum Medicaid, which we have some preliminary evidence um, suggesting that it reduces 
pregnancy-related mortality, they chose to extend it by a month rather than the full year that we had the option to um, option to take. So I, I think that I think that the the fallout from the Dobbs decision is going to is going to be happening for a very long time. Um, I think that clinics in uh, states that still allow abortion are going to be overrun. Um, I think that abortion funds, although they're getting they they're they're probably getting a lot more funds now, given the recency of the decision, are going to be strapped because more and more people are going to need funds not just for the actual abortion, but to to access um, the abortion. So, yeah, I mean, I don't. I feel like I um, always are I'm the harbinger of, of doom and gloom when it comes to things like this. But um, I think that this was a very disciplined, the result of a very disciplined um, and and consistent effort over 50 years. Dr. Tiffany, Dr. Tiffany Green, I want you to know that I find what you what you're saying not to be doom and gloom, but honestly to be really reinforcing for those of us who are worried, who do take this very seriously. It's really helpful to hear somebody say you should. This is a big deal and the consequences um, are, are going to be long lasting and can be extreme. Um, and if we don't do something about it now if we don't get out there and vote today y'all um there, there there could be there there could be you know some some things that we that we have to witness in our lifetime that are truly devastating and i think witnessing this was devastating enough i'm hoping we can uh, avoid some of the more extreme expressions of how horrible this can get. Dr. Kristen Lyerly, I I want to ask you on a, on a personal level, you know, have you helped someone resolve an ectopic, 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 I'm sorry, I can't say it now. <laughs> ectopic. Ectopic pregnancy um, since, since the Dobbs decision, since Roe v. Wade was overturned? I personally haven't, but I have colleagues who have. And, uh, the leadership of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists here in the state, we've met on a number of occasions to provide guidance and support to our colleagues. And one of the things that we are really firm about is ectopic pregnancies are ectopic pregnancies. They weren't abortions before Dobbs, and they're not abortions after Dobbs. We're not treating them like abortions. Take care of your patients. We've got your back. Is that going to be 100% you know, watertight? We don't know, but that is how we are deciding to proceed. So that's the question I also want to ask you is, are you worried about the fallout for you personally? Are you worried about the backlash against you? Do you worry about your safety? Do you feel uncomfortable alone in a parking lot? Um, do you know that the work that you do um, could could mean that there are people who really hate you, who think that you are out there murdering babies. There was a law in, I want to say, Ohio a couple of years ago that demanded ectopic pregnancies be salvaged, um, that they that you try to implant them in the right place in the uterus. Um, you know, some things that are, are medically impossible, right, like uh -huh. have, have been suggested. So do you worry about what this means for your personal well-being, safety, for your for your profession um, long term? Doesn't that just highlight how little politicians know about what actually happens in healthcare? that they write a law about something that has never happened and is not actually scientifically possible? I think it, it points to how many politicians have never breastfed anybody, have never given mm -hmm. birth, have never had a period. I mean, I think, you know, there is um, there there are more congressmen named John than there are women in Congress. You know, wow. um, this is one of the most disturbing stats. But there are, you know, 16 percent of people serving in Congress are named John. Um, you know, wow. that that the, the disproportionality of who is representing us um, is something we don't talk about as as often. Right. The overrepresentation of, of white folks, the overrepresentation of male folks um, and and what that means for how we have these conversations, because I'm mm -hmm. I assure you, nobody who's had an atopic pregnancy um, was saying you know, we should we should outlaw the the treatment that allows for a, a very dangerous um, pregnancy to be resolved. So right. Well, and to your original question, yes, I am worried. I mean, I am a woman who provides health care for women and often it's underserved women. So I as a physician am undervalued. 
And I recognize that using my voice to talk about these controversial issues in a place like Green Bay, where the Catholic high school actually gives kids philanthropy credits to go protest at Planned Parenthood. That's the climate up here. So yeah, I know I'm really putting myself out there, but I also know that I have to, because if I don't share these stories, if I don't help people understand that this isn't at all about killing babies, actually it's about saving babies. It's about saving women. It's about taking care of each other. It's about mm. building community. If I can't be that catalyst as a trusted member of this community, who's gonna do it? I can't back down. So yeah, I'm worried, but I, I'm gonna move forward and people are coming with me. I really appreciate that. And I think it's such a powerful thing to hear somebody say, I am worried and this is unsafe and it is hostile and still, we are worth fighting for. Our rights are worth fighting for. And, and I am so proud to be in this fight with both you and Dr. Green. Um, we have just a couple minutes left. So Dr. Green, I want to know, are there steps folks can take right now um, to, you know, to challenge this decision, to take action locally? What are, what are the things that you're hoping people get involved in and do um, in response to the overturning of Roe v. Wade and the Dobbs decision? So with the, with the disclaimer, as always, that I my views do not represent those of the UW School of Medicine or uh, the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I got that out of the way. I, I know this sounds very idealistic, but I think one thing that we can do is really ramp up civics education. I think that um, there was a lot of, of, you know, reasonable frustration with the Biden administration about what they could, what they were doing. But the reality is, this is this is complex and it's messy, and our options have options have been very limited given the election in 2016, given the composition of the SCOTUS. It doesn't mean that you should despair or not care, but you need to, and I, I include politicians in this too, certain politicians, you need to be clear and educate yourself on what the law says. I have colleagues who are legal experts that are still trying to cut, climb through and figure out all of these nuances. And I think politicians have a responsibility to their constituents to educate themselves <laughs> and, and their, educate, educate their constituents as well about what is possible in our current context and what could be possible. Um, so I think, you know, that and Schoolhouse Rock are really uh, critical, critical things. They seem like unrelated, but they are very much related. And then, of course, you know, donating to abortion funds is, is key and um, voting and electing and running for office uh, for people who run on evidence and facts and reality oh, is, is key doctor. at the local level. Dr. Tiffany Green, I want to thank you so much for giving folks those steps that they can take. I want to remind you all who are listening to WORT 89.9 FM, today is election day. Thank you for listening to A Public Affair. I'm your host, Ali Maldro. I'll see you next week on Tuesday. Please, please, please get out there and vote, y'all.